Welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and I'm excited to share a conversation I had with Katrina Wiles. But before I do, I want to remind everyone to please be thoughtful when making decisions to participate in dance, whether it is group classes or social dancing or weekend events. The coronavirus continues to spread, and while most people who are infected will only experience mild symptoms, we should consider the risk to more vulnerable populations in our community and those we may encounter in our daily lives. If you haven't already, please listen to the last episode, which was a special report on the coronavirus outbreak, in which I interviewed Dr. John Blaska about the science of the disease, and then spoke with Brandy Guild about our concerns and response to the current situation. If we all stay informed and take precautions, we can minimize the risk of transmission to ourselves and those around us. With that said, today's episode is a little something different. I've been a big admirer of Katrina Wiles for many years, as I loved her routines with Paul Warden. I'm a big admirer of his as well. Katrina has studied dance all her life. She began with ballet at age three and moved on to train extensively in a range of partner dances, including country and Argentine tango, among others. As you'll hear her discuss in this interview, she discovered West Coast Swing while visiting the United States for country competitions, and when she returned to England, she helped to develop the community there. She and Paul came together and brought their classic routines to events around the world. They were known for being clean, graceful, musical dancers, and they finaled multiple times at the U.S. Open, every time they entered, in fact. Katrina also created and has been the event director for the London Swing Invitational, which takes place each November and she has been an MC at numerous events as well. I finally got to meet Katrina when I was traveling through Europe a couple of years ago, and I very much enjoyed chatting with her. At the start of this year, she posted on Facebook that, after many years of running West Coast Swing UK and the London Swing Invitational, she had decided to stop her involvement in both and retire from West Coast Swing. I was sad to hear the news since I've enjoyed her dancing so much, but I was also curious to hear more about her announcement. We all experience ups and downs. Sometimes we leave the scene, sometimes we come back, and I wanted to hear her story and what led her to her decision. She was honest, forthcoming, and very thoughtful about her journey and her reasons for leaving. She talked about how she got started with West Coast Swing and how she became more involved in the scene in the UK. She shared her views of the growth of West Coast Swing in Europe and why she doesn't feel like she wants to continue there. She talked about her partnership with Paul, how they created such amazing routines, and why their partnership ended. And she reflected on her decision to retire, how she feels about it now that she's announced it, and what she plans on doing with her free time. I think she brings a perspective that isn't all that uncommon, and I think there will be many of you who share some of her feelings about the dance. I know her sentiments resonated with me quite a bit. So here now is my conversation with Katrina Wiles. Katrina Wiles, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Thank you for the invite. Yes. Well, I've been wanting to sit down with you in part because I would like to learn more about your background. I've been watching you compete and dance and more recently MC, and I was hoping to learn more about you. And then I know earlier this year, you said you were going to be exiting the West Coast Swing scene, which we'll talk a little more about. Mm -hmm. I thought we would first start by talking about how you discovered and got started with West Coast Swing. Can you tell us how that happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, It's quite a a convoluted uh, way, actually. Um, I started dancing uh, country and Western dancing when I was about seven. Um, My parents went to a country music festival when I was six in the UK. It was a two-week-long festival. They went for one week of it in uh, Pontins, which is a holiday camp here in the UK. And um, they really enjoyed it. And they thought that next year they would take myself and a friend and we could play with Captain Croc and uh, participate in all the activities they have for children at that holiday camp and uh, they could continue enjoying country music and there was some line dancing going on and some pattern partner dances and uh, country two-step and that kind of stuff that was being taught. Um, so I went back uh, when I was seven with my friend Vicky and actually we were really inter- in, uh, interested in the dancing side of it. So we started learning to line dance and to partner dance and square dance and all of the stuff that was involved in that event. Um, I stayed involved in country 
country for many, many years. I competed as a, a, an amateur in Pro-Am. I also competed as a pro, uh, won, won a couple of world championships with the UCWDC over the years. And during that time, I spent an extensive period of time in the USA. I was there on and off quite a lot between 1999 and 2004. And at many of the country events, like the Big Apple country dance event in New York and uh, some of the other uh, Peach State in uh, Alabama, not Alabama, it's in Georgia, actually, um, they used to have a swing room. So they'd have a late night swing room and I would go and watch and see people like Robert Royston and Steve Niren and uh, John Lindo uh, just doing their thing. And I never joined in. I just watched and observed. Um, it was still a very minority thing at the, those uh, UCWDC events. Uh, but that was my first uh, experience of West Coast Swing. And uh, the rest is history, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you have lots of training in other dances. You mentioned country. Yeah. Uh, we've also done ballet yeah. and ballroom and others. Yeah. yeah. And my understanding is you learned West Coast Swing socially, either just on the social yeah. dance floor or watching others. Yeah. Was there anyone in particular you watched and how did you work on your own dancing? How did you incorporate what you were seeing in those you admired? Well, I mean, West Coast Swing was part of the country dance syllabus or is part of the country dance syllabus. So mm -hmm. it's obviously a little bit different. It's a bit more contrived. It's more routine based um, when you're competing, competing, obviously. So uh, I did have some experience of, you know, routine West Coast Swing. Um, I some of the names I've already mentioned, Robert Royston, John Lindo, uh, Robert Cordoba, probably. Um, those are people that I watched. And from a female point of view, it was Blake Hobie, Jessica Cox, Brandy. She was Fillion then. Um, now Brandy Guild. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to think who else was kind of inspirational to me at the time. There were some other country dancers that used to dance um, West Coast Swing. Anyway, I watched them and um, I never really had a lesson in it. I didn't really work on it, to be honest with you. Um, what happened was after I finished uh, my stint in the USA I came back to the UK in 2004 and I was introduced uh, to the modern jive and Siroc community um, I'll explain a little bit about how that happened in a moment but I was asked quite quickly on my return if I would teach a West Coast swing class now of course I'd seen the dance but I had no experience of it mm -hmm. but I did have the advantage of knowing uh, many people in the USA who uh, had video notebooks of the classes that were taught um, at weekend events and being a dance teacher already it wasn't hard for me to translate the video notebooks into tangible material for low-level West Coast Swing classes in the UK. So I actually learned the dance on the fly. Um, in terms of taking it to the next level, there's lots of things in this story I'm kind of missing out because it was, it's a whole book's worth of information. But uh, Paul and Paul Warden and I knew each other from line dancing. He was a competitor and I was a judge and we never really spoke. But uh, three days before I moved back to the UK from the USA, I happened to be staying with a friend in Atlanta and I asked him to take me to um, the uh, Peach State event. No, it wasn't preached. It was Grand Nationals. It was Grand Nationals for one night. Uh, I got an evening pass because I was in town. He dropped me off and I walked in and lo and behold, big tall black guy walked toward me and it was Paul Warden and he kind of said hi and I said hi. Like I say, we knew each other who we were, but we'd never really spoken and um, he was there. He'd been doing West Coast Swing for about a year in the UK and he'd been to a few uh, USA events. And of course, I knew all of the USA pros because I'd, they'd been attending West Coast Swing or UCWDC country events. Mm -hmm. And I'd been performing with them in the shows and things like that. So I already knew these people. And I introduced Paul to John Lindo and to Jason Colosino because he didn't know them in person. And um, during that conversation, he told me that when I came back to the UK, um, was a thing called modern jive that I might be interested in doing because he thought there was a guy in the community that I might be interested in partnering with for jive and tango and some other stuff uh anyway needless to say when I moved back to the UK Paul and myself met up a couple of times socially and then I went round to his flat and we decided to try and teach ourselves Kyle and Sarah's Johnny Be Good routine from <laughs> a DVD and we were in his carpeted little apartment in Basingstoke uh, both of us were a lot heavier at the time Paul was probably 
probably six stone heavier. I was probably three stone heavier. And so we weren't very fit and pretty. And we learned about eight counts of the introdu introduction of this routine. And uh, and that was the, the beginning of mine and Paul's partnership and the beginning of us trying to uh, do a routine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, yeah it's, it's a funny story. That evening, lots of funny things happened. But, um, yeah, it was not planned, put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool that Kyle and Sarah's routine was what inspired you. Yes. So you came back to the UK yeah. and were introduced to yeah. Ciroc and Modern Jive. Yes. And there was no West Coast Swing in England at that time, right? There was uh, for about for several months before, or the, the months before I moved back to the UK, there was an organizer called Marilani who uh, actually had organized a West Coast Swing class with Glenn Ball. Yeah. Now, Glenn Ball's experience, he had some experience of West Coast Swing through the line and country community, the same as I, as far as I understand. And he was a commercial dancer. And I think he just thought, oh, well, I'll be able to manage putting something together for this fun night. And he had done this class, I don't know how many times, but maybe a couple of times. And then there was an occasion where he was unable to do it. And he knew Paul from Line Dance. We all actually grew up in the same line and country community together. And he contacted Paul and asked Paul to cover. And Paul had actually taught a few evening classes in West Coast Swing before I got back to the UK. Um, it was very small. It was in a very isolated sort of pocket of the UK, but it was happening. So when you started West Coast Swing UK, what, what was your motivation? How did you envision creating a community? And how did you grow that community? I, I didn't. There was absolutely no planning or foresight into it at all. I was, <laughs> I, I subsequently ended up with the guy that Paul hoped I would end up with. We were boyfriend and girlfriend and partners, uh, specifically in Argentine tango. But in that time, I had started teaching this fun West Coast Swing class that I had been approached to teach uh, shortly after I moved back to the UK. And um, in that time, uh, my boyfriend had set up the or purchased the domain West Coast Swing UK for me or westcoastswing.co.uk and he did it on a bit of a whim just as a I don't know just thinking ahead for me really mm -hmm. and I had a page on his tango website um when I started to do more West Coast Swing with Paul and when we started to get an international presence uh, I then made more of that website and we started to run classes and workshops but to be honest it was a very organic experience there was absolutely no planning no forethought and no intention of building a community it was just so we could dance and we gathered some followers and I think we were at the right place at the right time because there were, was no representation from England and very little in fact in Europe mm -hmm. the only European dancers that were known were Olivia Massart and and even Maxence wasn't known at that point uh, it was really just Olivia uh, he'd been t uh, competed at the US Open already with a boogie woogie routine and there was a few people popping around uh, popping up in the community but there was there was nothing in place that I know about um definitely not what it is today and so we really just uh developed a following through word of mouth and and the luck the fortune of this website that had been purchased for me um but I, I never in a million years planned to make this my job or career it right. just happened yeah was it difficult then to draw people to west coast swing where were dancers coming from and how did you sort of bring them in? Yeah, it wasn't difficult at all, actually. I mean, first of all, we did no marketing. There was no Facebook. There was no YouTube. All those things were in their infancy. Right. But we used to go to these modern jive and Ciroc venues and dance socially in the corner. And people started talking about it. And they saw it. And they asked us about it. And they told their friends about it. I think some people had followed some international posts from other people. I know that Robert Cordoba had been to the UK at that point. Uh, ben Morris had actually been. But nobody really even realized it was Ben Morris. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there was a few people that had been to events and workshops in the UK prior to us. Um, so there was a little bit of a knowledge about it. Um, some people had obviously been to the USA as well on holidays and seen it. But uh, I would say that at that point, because there was nothing else, people just came to us. And it was easy to find us because it was an easy title. And uh, we were pretty distinctive as a couple. I mean, that we, we were known as the ballroom couple, which was ridiculous because at that point I'd had no ballroom training and Paul to this day has no ballroom training, <laughs> but we had a, we had a certain look and, uh, that was how it spread, but it, it had nothing to do with us. It really didn't because we had no infrastructure in place to promote ourselves, even if we wanted to. 
Right. It was the right place at the right time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I talk with a lot of community leaders. I mean, West Coast Swing is far more widespread now, but a lot of community leaders who are very interested and focused on bringing new people in. And um, Mm -hmm. I kind of had a similar experience to you in San Francisco where there just wasn't dancing in the city. And once we created something, it was really easy to to get people to come in the door. Yeah. You know, it just kind of happened. But uh, it it sounds like that was a similar situation for you where there was already sort of an appetite and you got in at the right time, had the right website um, and people found you. Yes. So you never intended on becoming a community leader. No. But what has your experience been? Because you've been running a community for 15 years now. Um, what have you learned about yeah. building and running a dance community? Uh, it's really difficult. It's very political. It's not always fun. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, honestly. <laughs> I think I have a huge amount of resentment toward it. It's always all been my choice. So I, the resentment isn't directed to any individuals, but I resent the things I've sacrificed to do what I've done mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that I've missed so many family occasions. I've missed birthdays, weddings, funerals. I've missed the opportunity to have a normal social life because obviously, obviously it's a dance teacher and myself um you work evenings you work weekends you work on social times um and i i i wouldn't do it again yeah. if i had if i could live my life over i wouldn't do it again uh, i'm very grateful for the successes that i've had i'm a very um a diligent person you know if i put my mind to something i'm gonna honor my commitments i'm gonna see things th- things through to the end um but with that comes a great deal of sacrifice. And I think if people go into this, they just need to know that it's not a smooth ride and there are sacrifices that have to be made. Um, I've always had the attitude and opinion that I'll do what I do until someone else is doing it better. And for a long, long time, I didn't believe anyone was doing it better. I think now that's changed, that people have more motivation, they have more enthusiasm for it, which is the main reason why I'm stepping down uh, I just I don't want to work that hard. I don't want to learn the new skills. I don't want to put myself out there in the way that I have. I, I you know my time has come and gone, and I'm okay with that. Um, so yeah, um, I don't really know what else. To say. I don't want to be negative about it, but um, it's uh, it's an interesting chapter that I'm kind of glad to see the back of. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, I. I don't hold resentment for it because, and I also didn't do it nearly as long as you in terms of running a community. Yeah. But absolutely, I think people think it's about the glory of running a community, of being in charge and getting to create, and they don't realize just how much time and effort and dedication it requires. And I think, like you said, sacrifice. Mm. Yep that it's a lot, a lot of hard work. And I had plenty of times actually in the beginning running a community when it was small and there were plenty of nights where Mm -hmm. I was like, do I really have to do this? Like go and set up and spend my whole night for like 20 to 30 people. (laughs) Like, is that really worth my exactly when I could be doing other things? Exactly. Um, And I I went and Mm -hmm. did it because like you said, you make the commitment and I do think a big part of building a successful community is keeping that commitment. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I totally get it. And now that I've moved away from that community and I'm, I'm still involved, but clearly not on a week to week basis, it's, yeah, it's, uh, honestly somewhat of a relief. Yeah. Now that I'm not doing it week to week, yes, I miss the people and I, I miss my students and all that, but I'm, I'm a little relieved to have a little more time and space in my yeah. life, like you said, for other things that are important to me. And that's kind of nice. So I, I exactly. totally get that feeling. Yeah. So what has been your experience then? watching West Coast Swing spread across Europe. Um, I mean, like you said, you started when it was still in its infancy there. YouTube wasn't that big or social media. And now it's, I mean, there's a whole other community that's kind of a a separate world from the U.S. or other parts of the world. Yeah, I think Europe in many ways has overtaken the USA in terms of like its um, growth. Um, I haven't been to the USA for a long time. Um, so I haven't seen firsthand what's happening at events, but I do see the explosion that's happening in, uh, Europe. I think that, uh, one of the reasons it's been able to grow so fast in Europe is because most of the countries or specifically the big countries like France, they run their classes in the format of, um, 
the curriculum that they follow per term. So people sign up like they do for school. Mm-hmm. We've never done that in the UK. We follow a different format. But uh, over there, you subscribe to a course and that gets people committed and it gets them past the pain threshold that most people experience when they learn this dance. And right. we have a huge amount of turnover here and very little retention, mainly because the people we're attracting are, um, this is a generalization, but an older demographic with more time and money. And uh, they're also quite set in their ways in terms of their dancing, or they've got very little dance training. And it's a difficult thing to transition into West Coast Swing. It's not an entry level dance, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in uh, in Europe, you've got a much younger again, generally, a much younger population um, who are learning more school age or university age, and therefore their capacity to learn is faster. They're usually trained in other dance disciplines as well, and um, they attract each other. They attract more dancers to them because they're so inspirational to watch. So I definitely think that that is a huge reason for it, plus the fact that we've got social media and you can spread information so fast, plus you've got a few community leaders out there who are very up-to-date with how to capture the attention of people, their audiences, with videos and other inspirational tools. And and uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised at all. I don't know how sustainable it is or how long it will last, you know, the, the world doesn't know what West Coast Swing is. Our community does and the fringes of community do. If you're involved in another dance community, you probably know what it is. But if you say, walk up to someone in the street and say, what is West Coast Swing? People don't, they need you to repeat the question. Um, so it's not known in the way that salsa is known or ballroom dancing is known. Even line dancing, which is probably the biggest um, social dance form in the world, I imagine, with regard to exposure. So I don't know whether it will stay niche or whether it will ever be mainstream. But I think people like Benji have done great things for the world in terms of getting exposure on television and things like that. So it remains to be seen, but it's not actually a community that I miss or want to be involved in because it's got so competitive and it's got so show worthy. It's so high pressure in terms of the performance side of it that I, I would shy away from that pressure. I think yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't do my job now. If I if I had the option to start my job now, I wouldn't do it. It's just it would be too difficult. I'm not good enough. It, it just there was there's too many things out there that would put me off. It would just be too hard. But then there's other people who are totally driven by that and they want the challenge and they are young and athletic enough to um, you know, put their bodies into funny shapes to get people to think they're cool. <laughs> Right. But I'm too old for that now. <laughs> well, that was one of my questions for you because I think a lot of us are drawn to the dance the way it is when we see it. Yep. And not that we we aren't still attracted to parts of it as it evolves, but mm-hmm. I imagine the dance as it is now is very different than how you saw it 15 years ago. Well, even longer ago, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Because you were seeing I mean, it while you were still in the country world before that. Right. And, you know, you mentioned that the dance is now more showy and more athletic, which we've talked about on this show before. But I'm also curious about that more competitive piece. It's been my experience that the European scene is a little more event and competition driven. Mm-hmm, definitely. Than here in the States. I mean, the States is getting, I think, more like that. But there's still, I think, a strong emphasis on on the social aspect of it. I'm curious if you have any thoughts or hypotheses on why that's happened in Europe, that focus on competition. And yeah, I actually don't know. I mean, I can't speak for Europe because I'm not there and I don't know how what the motivations are of those individual communities with regard to how it's being pitched from their mm-hmm. community leaders. I don't know. But in the UK, it's interesting because it was only ever a social thing. And actually, there is a huge appetite for social-only events here in the UK now. Um, the younger community and the population that do enjoy competition tend to only attend the competition events because of time and money. Mm. I don't think it's because they don't want to be social. I think they just have limited resources. And if they're going to go to compete, they're going to pick a country where they can go on vacation. They're going to pick somewhere that they can afford um, and where they can meet new people so they can grow their own dance. Um, And that may mean that they then can't attend the weekly or monthly socials. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel that there is a, a two separate streams of dancer here in the UK, the, the social only ones and the competition ones. I've always tried to keep a balance of that with my own events, specifically Swing V, the London Swing Invitational. I've tried to make it predominantly a social 
social event that happens to have some competitions. But the international dancers that attend, I'm virtually certain are only there for the competition side of it because they can get the other elements from where they are. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I know a lot of people who, like you said, they, they go to events because they're not getting the kind of dancing at home yeah. that they can get an event. So like you said, yeah. they choose to spend their money on traveling rather than um, yeah. investing locally. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear a little more, speaking of competition, about your partnership with Paul. Yeah. I had the privilege of seeing some of your routines live. I think the first mm-hmm. time I saw you all was at Boogie by the Bay in like 2007 yeah. or something. And yeah, that's I, right. I loved your routines together. I loved your song choices, by the way, some of my favorite songs Thank that you. you've chosen. And you had the opportunity to compete at the U.S. Open. Yes. And you finaled in the U.S. Open yes. several times. Every time. <laughs> I'm curious what that experience was like of going to the open and competing there. And I'm also curious to hear, you know, how you ended that partnership. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a big thing, but I'll try and uh, be as concise as possible. <laughs> um, I've kind of <laughs> explained a little bit about how we partnered up. It yes. was very organic. It was a very natural thing. At the time, I was dancing tango with my then partner, Amir, and I was also dancing country again with Lee Easton. So I was already pretty stretched. Um, but uh, for some reason, Paul and I decided to uh, uh, put a routine together. But actually how it came about is Paul was invited to go to Australia to uh, teach for a lady that ran a modern jive and Sorok organization who knew him from when she lived in the UK. And uh, part of that event was a gala evening where everybody had to perform and they had like 20 acts. I don't know if you know anything about the Australian dance community, but they're very routine based, especially in their modern jive community. So he needed to do a routine and his uh, friend Sally, who he used to do some social events with, was unavailable I think she may have even been pregnant with her first child or something was happening and she wasn't able to make it so um he asked me because we'd already done a little bit together and uh we thought well, what on earth are we going to do and um we asked Jordan and Tatiana to choreograph a routine for us. We actually asked Jordan to choreograph a routine and I was out in America and the plan was to meet with Jordan and do the choreography between us. And it didn't happen because there was, there was no time. And in the end, uh, he and Tatiana choreographed us a routine based on what they thought we might be able to do and sent us a video. And we tried to learn it and well, we didn't try. We did learn it, modified it slightly and performed it at a modern jive contest here in the UK as a way of kind of showcasing it. Uh, which was uh, interesting <laughs> in terms of its reception. And then we went to Australia and performed it in the gala. Um, and that was kind of how uh, the routine stuff started. But what we found is that Paul in particular had less routine experience than I did because I'd already done a lot of country couples routines and he had trouble remembering someone else's choreography. So what we decided to do was to do our own. Obviously, we had no precedent for that. We had no one to help us. I, I hear that excuse a lot, by the way. A lot of my people say we had no one to help us. And I just say, neither do we. And we didn't have YouTube either. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what we used to do is just <laughs> dance socially because we had a good social connection and we would dance three times to the same song and we'd film what we did and then we would relearn what we did socially and create routines and like I say I was quite experienced in routines so I would kind of control the the phrasing and the timing aspect of things and uh, Paul was more creative and he had more of the creative emphasis on the movements and so we all I feel that we came up with brilliant choreographies because we had the best of both worlds and uh, so anyway we had this routine and uh, we went to, uh, I believe we went to Capital Swing first socially and we entered just Jack and Jill. I think it was Capital Swing. If it wasn't the first event, that was the second. And we, um, I think we drew each other in advance and won. We did that a lot. We always used to draw each other. Anyway, we moved <laughs> through the divisions quite quickly. I may well have got the timeline slightly wrong on that but one of those events we which probably was boogie by the bay we put our classic routine on the floor and and we came fifth and in those days that was a massive deal because you know the competitors were jordan tatiana and kyle and sarah and you know all the legends of west coast swing they were all active at that time and and Actually, we had higher placements in from some of the individual judges and it caused a lot of stir and people loved the music and they were like, who are you and where did you come from kind of thing. So we were quite 
popular, I'd say, from the beginning because we were like the English couple and mm -hmm. the ballroom couple, which was funny. And <laughs> and so we, we went to three or four events. We did all the big ones and, and we didn't really know they were the big ones. We just went because they were the ones we knew we'd heard about, which fits in with them being big, but we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. So we did Swing Diego, Grand Nationals, Boogie by the Bay, Capital Swing, Phoenix Fourth of July, um, summer Hummer in the end, uh, you know, big, very well-established events. And we always did very, very well, especially in Jack and Jill and Strictly Swings. And we would tend to do pretty well in Classic too. So it was natural that we, the next stop would be the US Open. And, and we, we finaled every time. Our highest placement was sixth, again, against all those great competitors. So we were kind of well set uh, in terms of putting West Coast Swing on the map for the UK I think also, though, we did well because people wanted us to do well because they wanted that European representation. Mm. They wanted an English couple. They wanted a French couple. They wanted a Brazilian couple. So we, I'm not, I think we were good, but I think that we were always looked on favorably because of that, because they wanted us there and they wanted our support and we wanted their support. So, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was nerve-wracking, and we used to hate drawing straw poll for the order, especially oh, yeah. at the Open. Because we had to follow Jordan and Tatiana one year. Who wants to follow Jordan and Tatiana in any year at any place, let alone the US Open? And that was probably, the, for me, the scariest moment in my life. Um, but I don't know. We just did our thing. And because it was our choreography, we, no, we didn't look like anyone else. And when we did well, as a consequence, right up until the last year that we did it, which was 2013. Yeah. Well, I've always admired your routine, not just, like I said, for song choice. Thank you. It's interesting to hear you talk more about how you put together the routine, because yeah. I absolutely see that, you know, the the structure of it, but also the little musical moments within. Yeah. In fact, before I sat down to talk with you, I sat with my girlfriend and we watched some of your routines and we, <laughs> she had never seen you dance before. And she was okay. like, oh my God, these are amazing. Um, <laughs> plus, you guys were super clean. Yeah. It's actually funny to me that you say like we were known as a ballroom couple because I kind of knew you guys as ballroom. I didn't know your background. I just knew that you were so clean. Yeah. And that was not common at West Coast Swing. I mean, it was among the top champions. Yeah. But not among the masses. Yeah. And the, the quality of movement that you both had um, yeah. was extraordinary. I mean, it still is extraordinary, but uh, in your Thank routine. You. So that's probably why you got that reputation as ballroom because I think yeah. in Swing, we... Yeah. When we think of like that sharpness and cleanliness, yeah, it's yeah. not common in our dance. <laughs> it's common yeah. in, in what we perceive to be in ballroom. That would be my assumption. Yeah, I mean, I had to, I mean, being a trained ballet dancer, obviously everything has to be precise from that, uh, in that style. And then when I was dancing country, I danced country at the highest possible level. I danced, you know, um, open eight dance professional, which is basically masters. And so I already had good degree of experience in terms of finishing stuff and you know the polish of the routines and then of course Paul is a very sharp slick mover anyway so he had that going for us I would say and I'm I'm pretty certain he would agree with this that we were the laziest couple that I know we did at the absolute bare minimum and got the maximum return from it so we always said if we actually worked we'd be brilliant so <laughs> uh, we because we literally just didn't nothing I mean when when we did work together it would be like a one o'clock in the morning after a class at our tiny little venue with no mirrors, which is an octagon, and try and mark out a US Open size routine. And, you know, the conditions we did stuff in, even I'm surprised at how things came out. But I think Paul has an amazing creative, creative eye, and I was a bit of a drill sergeant as well. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the combination worked. Um, and then we, when we did see our stuff back, even we were surprised that it came out like that. It was just <laughs> one of those partnerships, in my my opinion, that just doesn't happen every day. And so, yeah, it was a it was a unique experience, and and I think we were exceptionally lucky that things worked out the way they did. Yeah, well, like I said, I I loved your routines together, and I'm glad they're there and captured on video for people to see. Yeah, not all of them, unfortunately. There's no. a many because we came in at a time when there wasn't much stuff, uh, much social media. We actually don't have all of our stuff on YouTube. Right. Um, it's on tapes and DVDs and things. And uh, uh, when I go to an event now, if I'm going to an event to MC or or even to teach, I know that half the community look at me saying, "Who are you?" Because I don't have a social media presence, or well, I do have a social media presence, but I don't have a YouTube presence as strong as. Uh, as many of the others and 
from that point of view, it's a bit of a shame because um, we haven't got a complete history of our of our journey, yeah. actually. Well, you'll just have to start digitizing DVDs. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm kind of scared to do that, but yeah. <laughs> what led to you and Paul ending your partnership in 2013? Um, well, I mean, I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to um, implicate anyone, but uh, Paul was going through a pretty rough time and had been for some time. He had mm-hmm. some health and personal issues in his life that were not going so well and things were crumbling a little bit. And in the end, I had to pull the plug on it. I just said, look, I, he had said, indicated that he wanted to stop anyway at some mm-hmm. point. And I pretty much said, well, let's not wait. Let's do it now and we stopped very quickly and Paul disappeared from the community for a a number of years and has only recently come back it was a dark time for both of us Uh, we never fell out personally as far as I know like it wasn't about that it was about other things that were going on in pretty much his life Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it was becoming toxic for both of us and for everybody involved so um we stepped away from it. Uh, I'm not entirely delighted with how that happened because I was left in the lurch a bit. I had contracts that I was obliged to fulfill, but I couldn't because he wasn't um, available. And I didn't know if I could continue because we'd always worked together and I didn't know if I would be able to continue without him. I didn't know if people would support me without him. Um, Fortunately, Michael Cabasa stepped into most of those contracts uh, with regard to us being somewhere together and that's how Michael and I started working together and the classes for quite a long time after continued to be well supported it's only in more recent years as the community as a whole has changed that the the classes are much smaller than they used to be but I I was lucky that people continued to support us both really so yeah it was uh it wasn't planned to end it but then we never planned to start it so I can't really say that it was unexpected because we, we just we ran each year as it as it came. We never really sat down and talked about anything beyond our yearly contracts. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about your concerns moving on without him. Yeah, because I, I've talked with other female professionals, including Deborah and others, who have ended their partnerships and then are worried about being seen as a solo professional. Yeah. I, I like to think that because of people like Deborah and Brandy, that that's been made easier over time for a lot of people to be solo female professionals. But yeah, when you're known as a couple and let's face it, traditionally, especially, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the, the man was seen as the teacher and you yeah. know, the, the one who did the most talking in workshops. And um, even still today, I'm in workshops where a question is asked about following and I'll see the male leader, you know, react and and respond to that. Um, So what you went through, I think, is totally legitimate. Now you also MC. Mm -hmm. Did you ever find sort of comfort with being a solo female professional? And what helped you get there? Um, Well, I mean, Paul was the social butterfly of our partnership, and I was the more serious business-like one. And so to step into that role of being everything was difficult for me because it's not in my natural personality to be extrovert. I'm totally introverted and don't have any huge aspirations to change that, to be mm-hmm. quite honest with you. So so from that point of view, it was difficult. I knew I had the expertise, but I wasn't sure if I'd be taken seriously. For instance, when you're teaching a workshop and the leaders want to either see a leader perform the movement or to hear from a leader's point of view and wouldn't necessarily trust my judgment by me telling them uh, until you know they realize that actually I do kind of know a little bit about what I'm talking about. But there are people that don't attend my classes because they want to see a male-female partnership or it is easier as a leader to pick a follower to demonstrate a point than it is to do it vice versa. So very quickly, I started teaching as a leader. I uh, learned to lead quickly and I always teach as a leader now unless there's a unique situation where I have someone to teach with who is, you know, of a certain level. Um, so, yeah, I think that trying to reverse teach, like I did at the very beginning, you know, be a follower and try and teach with a leader demo was exceptionally difficult. I I don't know where I get comfort from the fact that I can do it. I, I, I'm lucky I can do both parts, but it's definitely something that is 
probably difficult. I, I know that I wouldn't get booked for an international event on my own. I know that people like Brandy and Deborah do, but they are the exception to the rule. There's so few few people that do that. Mm-hmm. We'd seen lots of individual males do it. I mean, John Lindo always did it, Robert Royston, and many people in our community, Robert Cordoba, even to this day, those people are uh, Michael Cabasa, they're booked as individuals and it's not a problem, but there's very, very few times where you see a female booked um, individually. I don't know if that's, like, I don't feel any bitterness or resentment towards that. I kind of get it. If I was going to a, a partner dance class, I would feel the same, that maybe I wasn't getting the, the same experience. It's not that I have any, any lack of respect for the follower or the female, but um, if I had a choice, I'd go to a class with a couple rather than an individual. Mm-hmm. And if the individual was female, that would be third on the list. It just, I think that's just, you know, how I, how, my experience of dance, of partner dancing has not been that way. So it's like innate in me. It's just a natural reaction. But it by no means means uh, do I think that females are incompetent. I know for myself that I know more about a lot of things than many leaders. Right. I don't know everything, but I know more than enough to do my job. Otherwise, I would have gone out of business in 2013 when Paul left. Mm-hmm. And it's 2020 now, and I'm I'm choosing to leave. So it can be done, but it, it's difficult. And it's actually, you know, women are supposed to be more emotional and, you know, we're supposed to have these different characteristics as people. It, it is true. It is an emotional experience sometimes. And I've definitely felt over the years a lack of support. And it's been harder if, if I'm having an emotional moment to deal with that. People expect that just because you're in charge that you're that you're strong and you always are in check of your emotions and everything's always great. But actually, that's completely opposite from the truth, I think, for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's, I, I still feel kind of diverting slightly, but there's a them and us situation between the students and the teachers. It doesn't matter how good or uh, what level of student of teacher you are. There is still that divide and people do kind of look at you like on a pedestal and don't necessarily realize that you're human and I think that that's probably been my difficult thing to contend with is that people forget that you're a human and you need feedback and you need positive reinforcement sometimes and 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 you don't always get it if you're perceived to be really good at what you do because people think you already know it and, and so I, I think I struggled with that when when my partnership broke up then it's like oh, can I even go in the, can I, can I go to an event on my own? Like I I was agoraphobic before our partnership. I I spent years of my teenage life, not even being able to walk into a room on my own. Somebody would have to walk in front of me Uh, at school. I was completely agoraphobic. I used to have panic attacks. I've had panic attacks on and off all through my life. So for me, when I go into work, I have to put on my, get myself into my dance bubble and actually be able to change persona for a moment to be able to do my job and most people don't realize that either because I'm so confident in what I do that they assume that's me and actually it's not that's my dance persona because if you ask me to walk into a pub in England for a drink I'm going to hesitate at the door Mm. which is ridiculous when I've gone to an event and stood in front of a thousand people and compared it but that is that's my dance bubble so and it's much harder when you're on your own when you've got the your the support of your partner you can walk into any situation paul has been nervous too we've been many events where we've been nervous we, i remember we were teaching at an event and kyle and sarah walked through the room and we were just thinking please walk really fast and don't stay because <laughs> we felt like our information may not be like valid or they may pick a hole in it you know it was we were booked as a, not equal, but we were booked on the same lineup as them. So we already were respected, but th- our instinct was like, Oh my God, these people might think we're shit. Right. <laughs> so when you've got two of you, it's easier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've often talked about the difficulty or challenge of having to be on all the time. Yeah. And yeah, but it's impossible. I, yeah. I mean, there are just days that I just have a bad day <laughs> and then I have to walk into yeah. the classroom and like somehow turn it off. Yeah. To the best of my ability. And that's, it's a challenge. Yeah. I think you're right that a lot of students, much like we are when we're school children, you know, when you tell little kids that their teachers have lives outside of school, their minds are blown. Yeah. <laughs> I think even as adults, we kind of forget that our teachers are people who go home and have lives and feelings and, yeah. <laughs> you know, ups and downs. So, yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. You've been through a lot throughout your dance journey, and particularly throughout West Coast Swing. Mm-hmm. So you were drawn to West Coast Swing at the beginning, and you wanted to learn more, right? So there must have been some motivation or inspiration. I'm wondering how that changed 
throughout your dance journey? Did it change when you started doing routines? Did it change as you became more of a community leader? Did it change as you moved into an MC role? You know, how has your view and love of the dance changed throughout your journey? Yeah, I mean, when I was introduced to it, I was, you know, dancing country and I loved it because I had a passion for it since I was a child. I've been going to these country music festivals all my life. So and I still feel that that's more in my soul as a dance style than West Coast Swing ever will be, because that was my roots. And West Coast Swing happened as a byproduct of that. And I happened to be good at it. And we were enticed to pursue it. And so we did. So I can't really say that I was drawn to West Coast Swing in the way some new dancers are. You know, it wasn't like, oh my God, I've got to learn that. And it's amazing. And I want to do this, that and the other. It never happened like that. It was more organic than that. It was just what country pros ended up doing. And I enjoyed the competition process because A, I like routines and B, I like doing well. And that's what we did. I liked being on the lineup with some of these other people and being invited to these places that we'd seen on videos. I enjoyed the social interaction between uh, my peer group out there as well, new friends, and just the social element was a big thing. I think that when you become a teacher at it, or especially full-time, you do lose, for me, you lose some of the joy of it because, like you say, I have to show up every night of the week whether I want to or not. I've got to come up with creative ideas. I've got to remember what I've taught last week I've got to remember what I taught those people because sometimes I see some individuals two three times a week and the pressure of coming up with something innovative all the time is quite hard um it definitely takes some of the joy out of it for me but also I haven't grown as a dancer myself like I go to a few events now but not so many as I used to and I'm still expected to perform like a pro and be on the pro lineup and but I don't do it every weekend and I'm I'm not training my body's not fit anymore and I find a huge amount of pressure to deliver and naturally have shied away from that over recent years because I don't feel equipped to handle that pressure it's, it's not so much that I don't think I'm good enough I actually don't think I'm good enough right now but I think that it's possible to be good enough again I'm just not sure I want to put in the time and investment to do that for four events a year so you know my I don't I'm not really in love with West Coast Swing anymore which is obviously a huge reason why I'm leaving so I loved it I, I would find a way to stay in it and I just don't want to I I'm amazed by what is happening in our community and the exposure it's getting and the creativity and all this kind of stuff but I didn't, I don't tune into live streaming of events. I don't follow uh, routines anymore. I don't follow individual partnerships anymore because the drive for me has gone. And, you know, I can't keep track of it anyway. It changes so fast. It, you know, people used to be in a partnership for a long time back in the day. And now it's questionable who's now dancing with who for this season. There's names that kind of doing lots of switches and, and uh, that's great. Uh, that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. So because it's not what I do in my spare time, I don't choose to keep track of it in the same way that I used to. I, I do watch some individuals' videos every time they pop up because I know they'll be brilliant. For instance, Maxime and Tori, every time they perform a lead and follow, it's like a routine. They're incredible. And so that's fun for me to watch. But mostly I don't follow what's happening so much anymore because that my heart isn't in it myself as an individual. At what point? did your love of the dance start waning? I don't know. It's very hard to say. I thought you might ask me that. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't know. because so It's kind of gradual over yeah, time. Yeah, it's gradual over time. There's, there's you know, things and circumstances and conversations and experiences that happen that kind of brought me to a point. And um, it was never... It, it, I eased into the community and I eased out of the community. It wasn't, there wasn't a defining moment. Obviously when Paul left, it was difficult, but I never thought for one moment I would stop at that point. It was just like, how am I going to get right. through this? Uh, whereas now I've made a conscious decision to stop. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I couldn't tell you, um, when exactly, but I think it didn't help when, uh, a couple of years ago or maybe a year and a half ago, I started to get quite dizzy and had trouble driving at night. I still do if I'm very tired. And I think I was traveling very far for some of my weekly classes. And, um, I realized that it wasn't really going to be sustainable for me to continue doing that because I didn't feel safe driving home. So I think that's kind of when I thought, mm, do I really want to do this? And and I also went to a few events and I arrived and I was exhausted. So I went to bed and I didn't stay social dancing for the last night or I'd go to a hot an event and not dance at all. And that's when I thought, oh, hang on a minute. Why am I doing this? Because the reason I wanted to 
go to America and those big conventions and spend 10,000 a year to do it is because I wanted to dance and I wanted to dance with those individuals. And it was when I started to bring Michael over to teach for me and I didn't particularly want to partner him for those workshops. I thought, hang on a minute, if I don't even want to dance with Michael, why am I doing this? Because Michael and I are friends and we dance great together. So, but that wasn't, uh, it, it was a very gradual thing. It wasn't something that kind of hit me in one particular moment. It was just on reflection. I thought, hang on a minute, this is, this is um, not how it should be. Right. So at the end of this year, after 15 years, you will no longer be running West Coast Swing UK or London Swing Invitational. Correct. How are you feeling now that you've made that decision and made it public? Uh, really relieved. I, I didn't actually announce it on purpose. Uh, I was at my 14th year anniversary party last year in August, and I was doing the thank yous, and we we nominate prizes for our uh, most improved male and female dancers and favorite DJ and a bunch of stuff like that. And at the end of the announcement, I said, oh, make sure you come see us this time next year. It will be our final year. And as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, oh, this wasn't part of the plan, but it obviously been on my mind. <laughs> and and people went, went very quiet, to be honest. And a couple of people left and a couple of people messaged me being quite upset afterwards. Uh, it, it did actually ruin the atmosphere of the event, to be honest, because it came out of nowhere. But I didn't plan it either. It just came out of my mouth. And the moment it came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, thank goodness I've said it. I didn't for one moment go, oh, my God, what am I saying? Retract, retract. I just thought. Yes, I've done it because now being a, a very anal person, I have to stick to my word and it made me put the ball in motion for stopping it. Uh, it made me go, right, OK, make a plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is the commitment that I will honour. I have a huge, it really has to be on record that I have a huge responsibility towards my regular students and supporters. I've got people that support me and they have done from the absolute beginning. And I never for one moment wanted to just... Um, walk away and leave them. I wanted to give them time to transition or explain what was happening, uh, which is why I'm doing mm, the final year. I'm, I'm also doing the final year because I feel that uh, 15 years of uh, West Coast Swing UK and 10 years of Swing B is a nice way to conclude. In, his, in history books, it sounds better than 14 years and nine years in my my mind. So uh, there's a huge part to do with why I'm continuing, but also to give people a chance to, um, to adjust. I think some people have already moved on. That's fine. Um, uh, but yeah, I just also gave me, gives me some time to just really make sure that it is the right decision, which, which it is, um, you know, bear in mind, West Coast Swing UK has been running for 15 years, but I was teaching for years before that. I was teaching West Coast Swing in the UK for at least two years before the company was branded. So, you know, it's been a long, long time. And I turned 40 last year as well. So it's kind of, everything kind of came at a time where I thought, well, if I don't stop at 40, I'm going to want to round it up to 45. And then I'll be 50. And the next minute, I'm in a cycle that I can't get out of. And I won't then have so many opportunities to move on and find another path um so that was a driving force as well so yeah it just kind of all fell into place as much as uh, it did when it started really and no i don't i don't have any regrets but ask me maybe interview me a year after i stopped and see how i feel i don't know <laughs> i might feel completely lost and empty and regretful and I've, I've always had the attitude though that dancing's not going anywhere and if everything goes completely wrong i can always come back to dancing it may be in a different role it may be a lower level but that's okay like no one's going to stop dancing because i leave so <laughs> you know they don't care that much so i i don't feel like i'm particularly closing the door on anything um but you know i spent a career in country before i did in west coast swing and before that i was a child dancer so it's not like it's the end of everything ever i don't know if i'll be drawn to dancing again whether it's west coast swing or a different style i don't know i i don't feel that way honestly i've got other interests now but uh you never know and only time will tell but at the moment i'm very happy with the decision and i don't have any plans to dance at all from december next uh, this year yeah what advice would you give to other dancers who may be struggling with their own relationship with this dance yeah, well, just to say what I just said there, it's not going anywhere. Like you can step away from dancing knowing that it's going to still be thriving when you come back. Like it might be in a different form. It might be in a different place, but nobody's going to stop dancing because a few individuals do. You know, Jordan and Tatiana stopped competing, but that didn't stop the US Open from running. Right. Uh, you know, it, I think people have a very 
personal relationship with dancing. Some people love it because it's brought them out of a dark spot. Some people hate it because it's put them in a dark spot. You know, everyone's got a different kind of experience. And I think if you have relationships in the dance community, that can become very difficult. It certainly has been the case for me. If you have a breakup in the community and that person's not going anywhere, which happened to me, then that can make it a really horrible place to be and you don't want to be involved. And then you have to kind of carve out another way to be involved without being with them and that might mean stepping away for a while I never did but I was already you know in in, like you say a community leader but if you're a social dancer a hobby dancer or even a competitor and it's just getting too much just go go like do something else for a bit and come back refreshed or take another path but what I don't want what I don't like is when people attack the dance because they're having a bad time for themselves um, I won't name any names, but there's an individual, just a hobby dancer in, that I know who has a real trouble with the dance. They don't connect with the dance well. They don't connect with the community well, but they kind of really want it, but it doesn't really work for them and take to social media on a regular basis to criticize the dance. And I don't think that that's the answer. It's not the dance's fault. It's you have to pick your path based on where you are, are at in your life. And, you know, for many, many years, dance was the driving force in my life. And uh, and I capitalized on that. Now it's not. And so I'm going to go find something else that drives me. Um, and if I want to come back, I'm sure there's a way. I don't feel that the door is closed. And I would say that that would be the same for anybody. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Is there anything you hope for the West Coast Wing community, either in the UK or more generally? <laughs> anything I hope. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I hope they miss me a little bit. <laughs> I hope that I didn't do everything in vain. What I don't know what advice I would give to the community as a whole because, you know, the PC, the political answer to that would be, oh, I hope you can all get on and cooperate and it would be amazing and grow the scene and peace and love. But that isn't the reality of the situation. I think I, I had somebody in our community ask for me to be their mentor when they joined the community and it was recommended to them by an Robert Royston and and I tried my best and they would have a few complaints about other organizers and other organizations and I always said to them stop worrying about what they're doing and focus on what you're doing and if you can be the best you can be and if you can create the best social experience for these people they will support you it doesn't matter what else any what anyone else is doing and and I guess that's what I would say I'm not going to be false and say oh you know everyone needs to join forces I maybe it'll be better for the dancers but I I I just don't think it's practical especially with the English personality (laughs) but I would say you know just try and continue to create good products and make it a good experience for the dancers and and then people will choose where they want to go and hopefully they'll go to everything and I don't think you all have to be best friends in order for the dancers to be able to freely dance wherever they want in the UK right? or the rest of the world for that matter. Yeah. What will you be doing if you're not dancing? What are you looking forward to doing with your free time? Uh, well, that's a big one as well. Many things. Um, I'm likely to move abroad, country to be determined, <laughs> somewhere warm. Uh, I have two doggies now, so I want to spend more time with them. But uh, I rescued them and I actually want to do more charity work. My father is involved in the Born Free Foundation, which is a wild animal charity. He's the big cat specialist for the big cat project. So basically, I grew up with lions and tigers in my back garden. And so he works predominantly with um, exotic animals. But I want to do some charity work uh, specifically for the stray dog and cat population in the whole of the world. And I want to see if there's anything I can do to contribute to that situation ending I feel very passionate about it I've been to a few places on vacation or work over the years and seen things that I've been very unhappy about with regard to animal welfare so that's definitely a huge interest of mine that I haven't quite worked out how I'm gonna get into it but that's where I see my future and I want to write a book I come from a family of writers and some of them published authors and I feel like I have a good uh way of words in when I'm writing. So I'd like to explore that possibility. And those are the two, well, the three main focuses at this point in time. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but I come from a background of conservation. Oh, really? And working in environmental nonprofits. So oh, okay, wow, I didn't know that. I totally understand that passion and the desire to 
give back and yeah. make a difference. So I think it's an admirable reason that you're leaving West Coast and, and what you'll be doing with your free time sounds yeah. very rewarding. I mean, I do, I do feel like West Coast Swing isn't my legacy. People ask me a lot about how I feel about leaving and what legacy I think I've left. And that's not something that's even important to me. I, I want to be appreciated for my con- contribution. Don't get me wrong. And like any, I would be lying if I said I didn't care about what people think. I do care greatly. I want to know that all my efforts were not in vain, but I don't feel it's a legacy of my life. And I certainly don't want to uh, go to my deathbed knowing that that's all that can be said about me. I want to do something more lasting, more more global. And that's where the charity interest comes in. I, I would have done it from the beginning, but there's obviously no money in it, as you would know, and you have to live. Mm-hmm. But I'm in a point in my life now where that's something that I want to focus on. And I want people to know that I'm trying to do something that has positive impact on the whole of the world and not some, not just a niche dance market. Yes, I totally understand that. I mean, I have the same sentiment of Mm -hmm. I'd like to really make a positive difference in this world. And it's not that dance isn't. I mean, you know, lots of people get a lot out of dance and their lives are changed through dance and that's super rewarding. But for me personally, there are things I care about like conservation or climate change, you know, global issues that I, yes, dance is great and rewarding, but there's other things that I'd like to pursue. So I totally get that sentiment. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You feel the same. Yeah, for sure. And like you say, I don't, I'm not trying to uh, make dance seem inadequate or insufficient. Like for some people, it has helped them regain their lives. I've had many people message me saying, you know, either myself or the community or whatever element of dancing has changed their life for the better, maybe brought them out of depression and maybe brought their life partner to them and all these great things. That is great. But that's, you know, their experience. And I don't, look to dance to fulfill that experience for myself i'm looking elsewhere so um you know if that's people's choice if they have that much success with dance then that's great i know that i've had that much passion with horse riding that i took up horse riding seven years ago on a a whim and uh i if if people feel toward dancing that i feel toward that then i get it because it is an addiction and a passion and something a connection that you can't explain so i do get how people feel about dancing. It's just not how I feel about it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about your experience, Yeah, kind of the whole journey you've been through. And I really appreciate you being honest and forthcoming about your feelings. Again, this is very similar to how I've felt at different points. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's actually really interesting to to finally sit down and talk with you about it. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I don't know about you, but I get it. I understand completely how she's feeling about the dance, about being a teacher and community leader, and about wanting to pursue other interests. Obviously, my passion for the dance and for teaching it and being a part of the community hasn't waned like hers has, but there have been times when I've felt that way. I totally understand the burden of being a teacher and having to live up to your students' expectations. I understand the sacrifices that you make being a professional or community leader. It's really not all glory. It's a lot of time and effort and hard work, and it can feel endless at times. Honestly, it's partly why I chose to move to Minnesota. I was tired of the constant hustle, and as much as I loved running Mission City Swing week after week, I really did. I also wanted to make space and time in my life for other things I care about. And I understand the feeling of wanting to do something meaningful with your life beyond dance. Look, It's not that dance isn't meaningful and rewarding. It absolutely is, or I wouldn't keep doing it. I love the dance for myself. I love seeing how dance helps people discover and develop themselves, how people grow as humans in the pursuit of learning to dance, how people learn to express themselves and their inner voice through movement, how people learn to connect and communicate with others, and how the dance brings people together for meaningful connections, whether friends or even lifelong partners. It's awesome. And it's super rewarding to know that as a teacher or coach or mentor, or even just a friend, that I help to make that happen in some small way. But I am also a socially and environmentally conscious person. And I personally have a drive to make an impact on some of the pressing issues of our time. 
It's why I pursued a career in environmental conservation for many years, why I stay politically engaged and active, and why I continue to seek a career outside of dance that creates meaningful impact. Yes, dance makes the world a better place, but I also want to help solve some of the problems that affect so many in this world. I think Katrina's decision to retire and pursue her passions is an admirable one, and I wish her the best in finding meaning and impact in her work. And for those of you who don't feel good about dancing, or it doesn't bring you joy anymore, consider taking a break. This dance is supposed to be for fun, and if someone isn't enjoying it, I think they might want to step back for a bit. As Katrina said, the dance will always be here, should you want to return. And let's be honest, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Sometimes taking a break helps you to rekindle your love of it. Some people can find that passion by changing the way they engage in the community. Learning to dance the other role, for example, or helping with the community, teaching, DJing, or something else. Some people just change how they approach the dance. But sometimes stepping away is the best remedy for someone. And that's okay. The dance will be there if and when you're ready to return. And so will the community, even if it has changed a bit. But what do you think? Where does dance fit into your lives? Do you have interests and hobbies beyond dance? Do your feelings about the dance wax and wane over time? Have you ever walked away from dancing? If you came back, what led you back to it? How do you keep your passion for the dance, or how have you rekindled it when you needed to? Share your thoughts with me and your fellow listeners. You can post a comment on the website, you can respond to our post on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at thenakedtruthwcs, and yep, that's true, you still can follow us on Twitter at NakedTruthWCS. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook, And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric. And I'm Katrina, and that's The Naked Truth. There might be just a, my dogs are just about to start a fight. Give me one moment. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Bertie. Oi. No. He's walked over to say sorry. That might, there's a small chance that might happen, but it could be funny. But if it becomes a problem, we can always cut it out. So (laughs) not the first time that animals have been heard in the background of the show. (laughs) Many people have dogs, sometimes cats. Yes. Okay. (laughs) One time a pig. But I didn't hear that one. <laughs> um, we do have two pigs too, but you won't hear them. Do you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>